Hello, and thanks for inviting me to speak today. <clears throat> the National Lymphedema Network asked me for my story for their patient extraordinaire. That was a few months ago. They only wanted 500 words. I started writing my story, and I ended up with 14,440 words. My new book, Lymphedema, Sentenced to Life in Bed, But I Escaped. I appreciate the invitation to talk about my new book. The book is about my life for the past 20 years after my cancer surgery. As you listen, you'll realize that I'm also talking about your life or the life of someone close to you. I beat the odds, but I think we can all <clears throat> we all have it in us to beat the odds when we're faced with a challenge or we're in a situation that we truly hate. <clears throat> Excuse me. Before I talk about my life today, I'll take you back a little bit to the, to the life I had before cancer surgery. Each day, month, and year as a child shapes us into the adult we will become, and the people we interact with have tremendous impact on our personalities. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I have one older sister. We grew up in a beautiful house with a pool in our backyard and a boat at the marina. We went to Catholic school, had beautiful clothes, plenty of toys. We had so many toys that we had an extra room just for our toys. We went on two vacations each year, usually skiing in the winter and somewhere warm during the summer. We had everything we needed. We also were allowed to do as many after-school activities as we wanted. I took dance, gymnastics, and taekwondo lessons. My sister played softball. Ba uh, softball, basketball, and hockey. Yep, she even played street hockey, <laughs> and they were pretty rough. They were so rough that the parents used to remind them to calm down every time they saw them playing. So, yep, my sister still has all her teeth. <laughs> um, we both had braces, by the way, too. <laughs> so, yeah, we had a good childhood. Both of my parents worked hard. They gave me and my sister a wonderful childhood and I wouldn't trade that for anything. We grew up with everything we needed, like I said, especially, but especially the most important thing. We had love from our parents. They gave us plenty of attention when they were, they were home. They both did work, um, and they always let us know how much they cared for us. They, worked they did work a lot of hours. They both loved their jobs, and we knew how important it was for them to work. My sister and I worked early on in life, too, because we wanted because we wanted to work, not because our parents wanted us to work, but we both had an interest in working at a young age. I don't know why my sister wanted to work, um, but I do know why I wanted to work. So of all the lessons I was allowed to take as a child, gymnastics was the one that ended up being my favorite. I ended up training in the gym about 20 hours a week by the time I was 12 years old. I wanted to be there every day. My mother, I don't think my mother wanted me there as many hours as I was there, but my father got it. He kind of knew, um, I'm not sure if he was an athlete as a child or anything, but he knew that that's where I wanted to be and that's where I needed to be if I wanted to be a great gymnast. So early on, gymnastics was my passion. I was a competitive gymnast, and I did all four events, but I won uneven bars most of the time. Um... And as a coach, my gymnasts won uneven bars most of the time. So the coach worked us pretty hard. 
I went to a YMCA in Brooklyn. At the time, it was the only place to do gymnastics. Um, and, yeah, the coaches did work us pretty hard. They loved coaching probably as much as we loved doing gymnastics. Uh, they used to tell us to stop and get water more than us asking them. I think, um, I don't even think water or taking a break entered my mind when I was actually doing gymnastics. So one day, my coach, Willie, Willie told us to take a break. We all got water. We came back. We were gathered around. And he asked us, I don't know why he asked this, but he asked us, if we had all the money in the world, what would we do with it? So I looked around as I was listening. I looked around the gym as I was listening to the other gymnasts. And they were all saying that they would, you know, have cars and houses and jewelry and whatever else expensive, you know, that was expensive that they could think of. I looked around the gym one more time, and I said, I want my own gym. Now, I can still remember how the gym was laid out that day and where everybody, all of my um, teammates and where the coach were standing. Um, the coach responded with, now that's a gymnast. <laughs> I don't think he expected anyone to come, you know, to say that. But I wanted my own gym because I wanted to have the opportunity to swing on the bars or walk on the balance beam at any time and, you know, have the whole gym to myself. That was my reasoning. So later on in life, when I did actually have my gym, I told that story on TV during an interview. My coach called me after the interview and said he remembered that day. Um, so, yeah, I kept in touch with that coach for many years. He's down in North Carolina. He's retired. He's loving it. So, And he has a family of his own now, so that's, that's all great. It was in the gym that I learned about perseverance and how to focus because... If you didn't keep trying to do a skill over and over and over again until you got it, you just were not going to be successful at doing that skill, whether it was a cartwheel or something a lot more difficult. I also learned how to focus in the gym. I actually had ADD um, as a child, not, not hyperactivity, but I did have problems with focus. And as time went on, as the months and years went on, I learned how to focus because I had no choice but to focus in the gym, and that did carry over into school, so gymnastics helped me in more, more ways than one. It was in Catholic school and with my parents that I learned about discipline and giving my best effort with everything I do. Uh, I kind of had no choice with that. Um, I was a good kid, though, so there weren't you know discipline problems. I'm talking about self-discipline, um, knowing that I had to get stuff done in order to be successful. I learned how to set goals as a child and work through problems for myself because that's what the sport, I guess many sports, that's what it's all about. Uh, you're responsible for your own actions, literally, and with gymnastics, you're responsible for your own safety, too. If you're not focused, if you haven't practiced the skill enough, when you get to a competition, you will get hurt if you haven't done your job, and your job is uh, practicing the skill trying to make it better every time, and giving your best effort. So I, le I learned early on that if I want to succeed, it's up to me. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure thousands of kids each year learn that and grow up like that. I think athletes have a better handle on how to manage time and how to set goals, but I'm sure other kids, you know, success you know, are successful even if they're not athletes. Anyway... Since me and my sister saw how hard our, both of our parents worked, it was only normal for us to want to work as soon as possible. 
So you can say I was a workaholic, workaholic pretty much all my life. I started working at the age of 12. My sister was my sister was four years older than me, and she delivered the newspapers. I saw how happy she was every time every Saturday when she had her money in her hand um, after delivering the newspapers, how much money you know she made each week. So I wanted to do the same thing. So at 12 years old, soon as I actually I wanted to do it earlier, but they wouldn't let me until I was 12. So at 12 years old, I got a newspaper route. It was around the neighborhood. It was not just one block up and down like my sister's was. It was all over the place. Um, and I did that for a little over a year. But besides delivering the newspapers, I also was in a training program to learn how to coach gymnastics by the time I was 12. So I went through that six-month training program, learning how to coach gymnastics. At the end of the program, they evaluated me. And they accepted me, you know, as a gymnastics coach. They did. They didn't take everyone. I remember them. I remember hearing them talk about it. But they gave me two classes to teach, and one was like four and five year olds, and another class was like six to eight year olds. And I was responsible for teaching them beginner gymnastics skills each week. You know, during their class, I was I was alone. I wasn't alone in the gym. There were a lot of classes going on at once. And I'm sure they were still monitoring me to see, you know, how I was doing. But it was up to me to come up with the lesson plans and and teach these kids how to do, you know, specific skills. So going back to that question my coach asked, if we had all the money in the world, what would we do with it? By the time I was 21, my childhood dream came true. I had my own gym. I worked at the gym for several years before that. And the gym owners wanted to spend more time with their families. So I ended up taking it over by the time I was 21. And then my workaholic syndrome kicked in. <laughs> I was working 80 hours a week operating my gym um, between coaching and running the business. Uh, yeah, 80 hours a week. But it didn't feel like that. It didn't feel like work. Um, I loved every minute of it. It's what I wanted to do all my life, and I was finally able to do it. I did other things, too, besides gymnastics, but that's where I wanted to be. That's what I wanted to do. Um, I stayed in college. I changed my major to business and advertising right after I bought the gym, but then I put college on hold, and that's another story. So anyway, throughout my childhood and into my 20s, I loved the outdoors, and bugs loved me. I know I went from owning a gym to talking about bugs. But we do only have a short time here. So one summer I got a bug bite. Actually, it was the end of the summer. And I thought it was the same as all the other bug bites I've ever gotten. But then it ended up looking like a brown mole. So I just figured it was, you know, a typical brown mole. I didn't know. It started to change. It started to change color. It started to get bigger. It started to, um, the edges started to turn gray. And every time I had shorts on and walked into my parents' house, my father told me I had to go get it checked. I still didn't think anything of it. But this went on for a couple of weeks. My father kept telling me to go get it checked. And finally, one day, I was sitting on the couch in the living room. My father was sitting on, on a chair. He looks over at my leg, and he starts yelling at me that I better get it checked. So my mother comes running in, asking what all the noise was. She took one look at my leg, and she ran to the phone, called her friend, and got the name of a dermatologist. So that week, I think they booked the appointment really fast, too. That week, I was in the dermatology office. It was Dr. Novick in Brooklyn. And 
the doctor looked at it and said, oh, no, 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 that this has to come out. So as he was saying that, he turns around, he picks up an instrument, he slices out the, the mole, and I figured, ah, you know, it's all over. But before that, even before that, when I was in the waiting room, I was looking at those informational pamphlets, and I knew it was a malignant melanoma in my leg. But I had no idea it could be more than just, you know, something on the surface of your skin. So when he took it out, I thought, ah, it's all over. But then he said he's sending it to the lab for a biopsy. So I wasn't really sure what that meant. But by the time I got home, literally from that appointment, my phone was ringing. I pick it up, and it's the doctor's office telling me that I have to go to this, you know, well-respected oncologist in at NYU. Um, they said it was so important that they had to make the appointment for me to get me in in time. I wasn't sure what that that meant, but they wanted me to get into that appointment really fast. So they made the appointment. Me and my mother go to NYU. We sit down, and Dr. Harris looks at my file. He puts it down. He looks at me and my mother, and he says, this is major cancer surgery. Now, I just thought this was a little thing on my leg, and it would be done and over with. Little did I know, I would have a doctor telling me, this is major cancer surgery. That was his first sentence. Then he went on to say, you will be bedridden for the rest of your life. So that pretty much hit me like a ton of bricks. So he said those two things over and over and over again. And in between that, he told us the details of the surgery, how they would cut the tumor out, send it to the lab for a biopsy. Then they would have to cut more out and send it to the lab for a biopsy. And they would have to keep doing that until they got what they called clear margins. So it was basically, me. I was under anesthesia. You know, the surgery took about eight hours while they went back and forth to the lab with specimens from this tumor um, until they got clear margins. So during that meeting with this doctor, he literally kept saying, you will be bedridden for the rest of your life. Your life will change. You will never work again. You will never get married. You will never have kids. You will be, be I mean, he literally said this stuff over and over and over again. And I know he said a lot more than that because I, I'm sure I didn't hear him because my life started to flash through, through my mind. It was kind of like a slideshow. And the pictures on the slideshow were actually pictures of my gymnasts, pictures of my childhood, pictures of things that I did that week, you know, working out in the gym. It was just the weirdest thing. A slideshow of my life passed through, you know, passed through my mind as this doctor is telling me and my mother that I'm going to be bedridden for the rest of my life. So I was obviously crying. My mother was crying. I never saw my mother cry. I might have seen her shed maybe a tear or two, but she was really strong mentally. So to see my mother crying as much as me, that was, you know, that was pretty crazy. So the surgery was eight hours long. I was in the hospital eight days. Eight, it, the surgery was booked eight days after my initial, initial dermatology appointment. And I think the surgery was at 8 a.m. I mean, there were so many different things that were related to the number 8. It was just crazy. It was just, I might have even been on the 8th floor of the hospital. So, so as I was going into the surgery, I knew I'd wake up. That wasn't, you know, I knew I would survive the surgery. I don't know how I knew, but I just knew that I'd survive the surgery. But I also knew that my life was over as I knew it. I knew, I knew my life would end up being a living hell. I knew I would 
not want to go into this sedentary life, but I figured I had no choice because the doctors kept telling me that I'd be bedridden for the rest of my life. So, I mean, even, even the surgeon, as they were putting me to sleep, was telling me that I would be bedridden for the rest of my life. I'm telling you, I was hysterical crying as they put this anesthesia mask on me, <clears throat> excuse me, to tell me that I would be bedridden for the rest of my life. So anyway, eight days later, my father brought me home. My mother must have been working. Um, and he was really the one who rescued everybody. Um, so I basically was rescued from the hospital that day by my father. We had to stop at the store, a surgical supply store, and get measured. I had to get measured for a compression stocking. Those things are made of rubber, and they squeeze your leg. They literally prevent your leg from swelling. Um, they hurt when they're on, um, and I have to wear one every day. I've worn one um, most days ever since the surgery. There was a short time in my life that I was not wearing wearing one because I wasn't doing as much standing, and I was doing a lot of swimming to really maintain, you know, this lymphedema. So anyway, my father rescued me. I walk into the house, you know, and they, they didn't really help me. And, you know, I had crutches and I was, you know, still, I still had a lot of muscle. Obviously, I didn't lose all my muscle within that eight days. So I got myself into the room, into my old bedroom, laid in bed and said to myself, now I'll be bedridden for the rest of my life. So my mother asked me if I wanted anything to eat, and I don't know if I did or not, but I remember her coming into the room asking if I wanted anything, and I think I probably just fell asleep. Um, and I remember being extremely upset because at that moment I thought that the doctors were right. You know, I had my leg up on a couple of pillows. I'm laying there. My leg was the size of a tree trunk, and I had no choice. I had absolutely no choice in this set. You know, in this matter I was forced into a sedentary life but it wasn't it was not really a life sentence I didn't know it at the time you know the day after you know the day I got home but my will to survive and my will to get back into a normal life really um really helped me a lot the first year was a living hell I was in bed a lot my leg was elevated all the time even when I coached my leg was elevated um, but eventually I was able to do more. Eventually, you know, and the more I did, the more I felt like myself again. Um, but it was a long process. I really wanted my life back. And at, at some point, I eventually said to myself, no doctor was, you know, was going to stop me or going to tell me, you know, how I was going to live my life. I was still elevating my leg like 23 hours a day. But at least I was able to get from point A to point B, whether it was for me to go to from the house to the gym, then once I was in the gym, elevate my leg, or from the gym home, or whatever it was. At least I was able to leave the house. I had a little bit of freedom back. Um, and I felt better and better as I was able to do more. So, as you can see, you know, I can obviously get around pretty easily compared to, you know, what I thought my life would be like. I obviously look healthy, so you wouldn't even, ex you know, think that I have, you know, this going on, but I do, and I've lived with it for 20 years. I'm do obviously doing well. So just before my surgery, going back, um, I have a cousin who's always been into research. She, um, 
And she's always been really good to me. She's my godmother. She took me to the circus every year for my birthday because that's what I wanted. Um, she always, you know, took... She, besides the circus, she took me, like, other places. She always spent time with me. She's always been really, really good to me. And she's still a very important part of my life. So anyway, she brings, she brings me this research. And I read... 95% of people who have malignant melanoma, which is what I had, die within the first five years because it returns. And when it returns, it doesn't return as a mole on your skin. It comes back to some other part in your body. I mean, it can even end up in your brain and it metastasizes. It basically, you know, sets, sets up camp somewhere in your body. Um, and a lot of the times when it comes back inside your body, you're not aware of it. Like a mole on your skin, you can clearly see it. You know, and then thank God, you know, somebody told me to go get it checked. But I mean, at least it's at least it's obvious to somebody if it's on your skin that you have to go get it checked. When it's living inside your body, um, you can't always see it, and a lot of people do not know the signs that something's wrong. They can't, you know, feel that there's something wrong in their body. So I, you know, so yeah. Um, I read that research and I was scared because I said to myself, okay, I might be dead within five years. So that first first year I was very scared. But then as time went on and I got stronger and stronger, I, you know, it still was in my mind that first five years. When that five-year mark came, I was happy. I knew it wasn't, I wasn't, you know, home free, but I knew that I had a really good chance of surviving another 50 years instead of, you know, dying within that first five. So I knew I was going to be pretty good. So when I went back to my gym for the first time, it was about a little after a month after my surgery, I was a spectator. Somebody drove me there. The minute I arrived, they, one of the parents of one of my gymnasts got me a chair to sit in. Then they got me a second chair for my leg. Um, and they set me up. I sat in the parents' area. I wasn't really happy being a spectator. So they... Um, you know, I was watching my gymnasts on bars with a coach. I mean, a really great coach. You know, they were they were doing, you know, good stuff. Um, but I wasn't happy there. So they relocated both of my chairs over to where my gymnasts were on bars. The other coach walked away and said, well, they're your gymnasts, you know. You can coach them now. You call me if you need me type thing. So they left me with my gymnasts. Each gymnast took a turn. Most, they were able to correct things I asked them to correct, you know, simple things like straighten your knees, you know, do this earlier, do that faster. Um, but one gymnast got on the bars for her turn, and she didn't understand what I was trying to tell her. Uh, she just couldn't get it. I, she tried five or six times, and I couldn't figure out another way to tell her what I wanted her to do. So I sent the kids for a water break, and I almost started crying because I realized I can't coach effectively anymore. And coaching was my life. That's what I loved doing. So I figured out these kids need more drills for their skills. A drill is basically when you break up the skill into different parts and you teach each part separately. Then eventually when they get those parts, you ask them to, you know, basically connect the dots or do each, you know, each drill one right after the other. Um, so eventually, I was able to travel to some of the best gyms in the country. I worked for world-famous Bella Coroli, the Olympic coach. I worked for him for seven summers. Um, I was actually his camp director one year. It was my third year there. Um, 
And the more drills and conditioning exercises I assigned my gymnasts, the better they got. And I realized they were progressing faster, they were healthy, they were happy, and they were winning when we went to competitions. So even when I was back on my feet and able to lift my gymnasts and spot the way I used to spot, I, I continued on with my new method of coaching, which was to assign a lot of drills and conditioning because it really was the best way. So this cancer surgery actually forced me to become a better coach. It was really a blessing in disguise because it not only helped me in the long run, it helped the thousands of gymnasts that I've coached over the years. And yeah, it was I've coached literally thousands of gymnasts. It also helped the tens of thousands of gymnasts whose coaches have read my books and used the information in my books. So now I can clearly see how the surgery helped me become a different person. Um, I had no choice in the matter, but it ended up helping me in the long run. So the doctors were wrong. I was not um, sentenced to a life in bed. To life in bed, I wasn't, as they would say, bedridden for the rest of my life. I wasn't in bed 24/7, as they predicted. Um, I got through the surgery, got through the rehab, and rebuilt my life. But actually, the rehab was not typical um, rehab from surgery. Usually, after you know. A surgery such as a knee surgery, for example, the rehab starts right away. My rehab was actually don't work out and, and elevate your leg. Uh, they warned me not to exercise for the first year over and over and over again because they knew my personality. They explained to me that if I attempt to exercise in that first year, the lymph vessels that are swollen right now, meaning right after the surgery, will not go back down to normal size and I'll end up with you know, keeping that tree trunk size leg if I attempt to exercise too soon. So basically, I, I did listen to them. Uh, it didn't last a year, though, I have to tell you that. They told me not to work out for a year every single time I saw the doctors. Um, in the beginning, it was every week, and then it eventually the appointments were every month and every three months, and, you know, they kept reminding me, don't exercise yet, don't exercise yet. But nine months after my surgery, my best friend gets engaged, which is all good. She asked me to train her, so I did start training her for her wedding, and I couldn't resist. One day after her workout, I get on the leg press machine. I didn't put any weights on it. I just did a couple of reps to see how it would feel, and I said to myself, you know what? This is it. I'm not waiting a full year. I'm ready now. You know, the swelling went down um, tremendously. I was still wearing the compression stocking every day. Um... And I knew I was ready to start moving my leg and getting the circulation going. So from that point on, I started to exercise. I did my own rehab. Eventually, I got to the point where I was able to squat 225 pounds again. So, yeah, I, I did my rehab, and I eventually got all my strength back that, you know, I lost over that year between the surgery and not working out. So that was a good thing. The doctors were correct, though, when they said that my life would never be the same after surgery. Okay, I'll give them that. The surgery did change me. I became stronger and even more confident that I could reach any goal that I set, and I knew that I could beat the odds any time that I was required to do that. So lymph lymphedema, which is what I have in my leg right now as a result of the surgery, let me explain that, because a lot of people can't make the connection, cancer or lymphedema. But when they took the tumor out of my thigh, they also took the lymph nodes out of my groin. And when the lymph nodes come out, 
The lymph nodes actually act as a filter. Um, the lymphatic system runs along, alongside the circulatory system, your blood. So when they took my lymph nodes out, my leg was not uh, as efficient, or the lymphatic system was not as efficient with filtering the blood, and a lot of that protein-rich fluid uh, ends up in the limb closest to where the lymph nodes were, re were removed from. And being my leg and gravity, uh, the lymphatic fluid ends up, you know, staying in your leg unless you elevate it. Gravity actually does work in your favor when you elevate your leg. That's why you have to elevate it. Um, so, I, so I do still elevate my leg when it's not in motion, especially if I don't have my compression stocking on. I have compression stockings on right now. Um, it's just the way it is, especially when I know I'm going to be standing. I have a small window of opportunity each day to get things done and enjoy life. Uh, that's mainly because sometimes when I wake up, if my leg is still swollen, I have to stay there another couple of hours. And it stinks to have to do that, but the alternative of having my leg swell more and more each day and the possibility that I could end up with another tree trunk on my leg, you know, tree trunk size leg, um, that couple of hours doesn't seem so bad. So during that small window of opportunity that I have to get things done and, and enjoy life, um, I do a lot. I take my dog to the beach, I ballroom dance, I train clients, I write books and articles. It's all good, you know, it's, it's good. I mean, I've been living with this for 20 years, it's just part of my life, and it's just, um, it's all good. It's fine now. Uh, so I want you to remember, if I was able to beat the odds, literally, beat the odds. Remember, I only had a 5% chance of living more than 5 years. I think you can beat the odds too. So when you're faced with the challenge, take it on and always remember that you will be stronger as a result of the experience. I know when you're going through the experience you don't want to hear that and I'm sure I would not have wanted to hear from anybody that I would be stronger as a result or that it would be a character building experience. You know, those things, people don't want to hear that. But in the end, it is true. So think about your goals, then figure out what you have to do in order to reach them. Thanks so much for this opportunity to speak to you. And don't hesitate to contact me if there's anything that I can do for you. Thanks again. Have a great afternoon.